the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Plan Your Estate Radio with your host, San Jose Estate Planning Attorney Bob Bergman. Bob's been practicing law for over 30 years and is certified by the State Bar of California as a legal specialist in estate planning trust and probate law. Bob is here to help you set your house in order with valuable insights you can use today to prepare a better tomorrow for your loved ones. And now, your host for Plan Your Estate Radio, Attorney Bob Bergman. The following is a repeat of my first Plan Your Estate Radio show, introducing me and my approach to estate planning. Feel free to contact me at planyourestateradio at gmail.com or visit my website at lawbob.com for more information. Hi, this is Bob Bergman, your host for Plan Your Estate Radio on KDOW. This is the premier show for Plan Your State Radio, so I thought this would be a good time for me to let you know a little bit about myself, where I come from, who I am, what I do for a living, and how I hope you'll come away from my show both educated and entertained. First of all, to let you know the who I am. As I said, my name's Bob Bergman, officially Robert P. Bergman. That's my official name as an attorney. It's also the name Robert is what my mom used when she was upset with me. So I pretty much would prefer that people call me Bob because otherwise, even though I'm, uh, it's been a long time since my mom called me Robert, I still have those feelings when people call me that. Please don't call me Attorney Bergman. Don't call me Mr. Bergman. That was my dad. Uh, please just call me Bob. That's what I go by. A little bit about me, because I, I have kind of an unusual background. I've lived here in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1968, when my dad retired from the Air Force and brought the whole family out from Virginia to California. Now, as you might imagine, coming from Virginia to California was quite a bit of culture shock. I was living in an area where everybody talked a lot slower took more time with their words, and also spread out their words a little bit more. For example, if I was still in Virginia, I would be talking something like this, which is how I talked when I first arrived here in California. But now, in California, by the way, it took me about six months before I could understand all you people out here because you talked so fast, it was hard to follow you. But now, since I've lived here for much of my youth and all of my adult life, I'm probably about as Californian as anybody else. Now, my background is a little bit unusual. A lot of people meet me and say, you know, so, Bob, where are you from here in the States? You know, you sound like you're from the Midwest. Well, people say that because I talk about my folks, and I say get instead of get, and I have to stop and think about that all the time. I do refer to pop or soda pop, which is kind of a Midwest thing. But the fact of the matter is, I was just raised by parents from the Midwest. My dad was a Nebraska farm boy, grew up in a booming metropolis of Kimball, Nebraska, about 5,000 people, where your nearest neighbor was a couple miles away. 
And my mom grew up in Ellsworth, Kansas, as a Kansas farm girl. Same kind of town as Kimball, which is, I guess, why my folks, when they actually met, they found they had a lot in common and a lot to talk about, even though neither one of them actually stayed in farming. My parents actually picked me up and adopted me in Tripoli, Libya. That's right. That's you know, you know, Don't clean out your ears. I, that's exactly right. Tripoli, Libya. I was actually born to an Italian mother who was an Italian expatriate living and working in Libya after World War II. And my parents already had two daughters, my older sisters, and they wanted to have themselves a little boy. So what they did was um, they managed to come into contact with my birth mother, who really couldn't care for me properly. So they ended up adopting me, and I arrived here in the United States Uh, So they tell me, by ship, if you can imagine that, that's kind of how old I am. They did have planes back in in the day, but we arrived by ship. They had to bring me in on an Italian passport because I wasn't a U.S. citizen at the time. And when I was four and a half, I became a U.S. citizen in El Paso County, Colorado, when my folks decided to actually uh, make me a citizen at that time. So my last name, Bergman, is not my original name. I used to have fun in high school. I actually went to St. Francis High School in Mountain View. Some of you may know that. And at the time I went there, about 85% of the student body were of Italian heritage. That's not the case today. It's much more uh, multiracial, multicultural, um, multiethnic than it was when I went there back in the early 70s. But I used to always harass my Italian classmates by saying, what are you, like a second-generation, third-generation Italian? You know, it's like, I'm Italian immigrant, baby. And they go, yeah, right, Bergman. I said, look, I didn't say my name was Italian. I said, I'm Italian. I think to this day a lot of my classmates still don't believe me when I tell them that I'm Italian. But I'm actually Italian by birth, a native Italian citizen, uh, but a naturalized U.S. citizen. So I identify as an American first and an Italian-American, probably a pretty distant second. But, you know, pretty much I'm an American. A little bit about me. I did grow up here in the San Francisco Bay Area, but my dad being in the Air Force, we spent a lot of time traveling around when I was a kid. Uh, We spent time in Michigan and in Colorado Springs. Spent a tour of duty at Kinley Air Force Base in Bermuda, if you can imagine that. I'll tell you what, living in Bermuda as a kid is great. Pink sandy beaches, if you've ever been there, they have pink coral. That's why they have pink beach sand. Uh, And a lot of places to explore and run around and get into trouble when you're a kid there. But I think for adults, might get a little island happy after a while. The island's only about 20 miles long and one mile wide at its widest point. You could easily drop it down on the Highway 85 corridor from South San Jose up into Mountain View half a mile on either side, and it would be swallowed up by the valley. Not a big place, but a fun place to grow up as a kid. Then we ended up in Virginia as my dad's last tour of duty, where I had the the privilege of of living on a military reservation and being close to places like like Yorktown and Williamsburg and visiting Washington, D.C. and Richmond. Virginia is one of those places where every time you take a a step in a direction, you trip over history somewhere. Uh, it's just just a fact. There's historical things everywhere. And my love of history really started living in Virginia. When we moved out to California, 1968, 
I went to junior high in Sunnyvale, and then I went to high school at St. Francis there in Mountain View, as I mentioned before. Um, My love of history and eventually my love of teaching started manifesting itself when I went off to, to college. I spent a year at Cal. Then I came back and spent a second year at De Anza College in Cupertino, where I got my AA. Then I transferred on to San Jose State, where I majored in social science and minored in African studies. African studies, you say? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was born in North Africa, um, but uh, I was interested in African history, South African history, uh, Nigeria, East Africa, back then what was Tanganyika and Zanzibar, now is Tanzania. And uh, my dream was to actually go into the United States Foreign Service. Now, I went so far as a junior in college to actually apply for and take the Foreign Service exam. And I guess I did well enough that they sent a team out to actually interview me. And they told me, Bob, you did really well on this exam. You have a grasp of history and geography and sociology and, and other cultures, things like that. We think you might make a fine foreign service officer. Only one problem. You don't have a college degree. And I said, well, true. I'm a, I'm a junior in college right now. And they said, well, when you finish your degree, then give us a call. We'll be interested. Well, I'll tell you what. When you're young and you want to do something, you want to do it now. You don't want to be told you have to wait for a couple of years. So the Foreign Service lost me with that right there. That was, that was a problem for them. Instead, I continued on at San Jose State to get my degree, and then I decided I wanted to be a teacher. So I went into the education block at San Jose State, and there I discovered that the future of teaching for me would be bleak because of the way they were now suggesting that we teach students in the classroom. It was not the way I was raised or taught, and I said, you know what? can't be a teacher. What else can I do? And that's when I decided, you know what? With this degree and my background, I could maybe go to law school. Well, after the break, I'll let you know just what I ended up doing. So talk to you after the break. Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio. Once again, your host, estate planning trust and probate law specialist, attorney Bob Bergman. The following is a repeat of my first Plan Your Estate radio show, introducing me and my approach to estate planning. Feel free to contact me at planyourestateradio at gmail.com or visit my website at lawbob.com for more information. My original intention in life was not actually to become a lawyer. My intention was to be a teacher. In fact, I wanted to teach high school history and geography and things like that. That's something I had a love of back when I was in high school and college, and I still love today, even though it's hard to keep up with geography because so many of the countries keep changing their names every every other week and their flags. I used to be able to identify all of them and their flags. Can't do it anymore to save my life. Well, back in college when I started studying the education courses at San Jose State, They wanted to teach the kids what they called the open classroom concept. And the concept sounded absolutely ridiculous when you heard it, but for for some reason the education community was really embracing it at the time. 
the idea was let's not have kids in a regular old classroom, just one class per room with one teacher, maybe an aide. No, let's turn around. Let's put several different classes going on simultaneously in one gigantic room. Now, we all grew up in schools that had something like a multi-purpose room where you did all kinds of things in there from maybe play rehearsals to to um, having you know, reading clubs to, to playing games, you name it. Well, what they did was they actually purpose-built a high school and two middle schools in San Jose with this open classroom concept. And uh, one of them you may have heard of is Gunderson High School, and then they did Castillero and Steinbeck Middle Schools they built that way. And as a student teacher, I was compelled to go and sit in these classrooms and try to follow what was going on. And I can tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, it was a disaster. In fact, it was such a disaster, I found sitting in a history class, I couldn't hear the teacher sitting in the back because of the five other classes going on behind my back in the same room. And what happened was I decided I can't be a teacher if this is what they're going to expect me to do as a teacher. This You can't teach this way. So I dropped out of the education program at San Jose State, and then at the time, and this is where it gets really funny, ladies and gentlemen, I looked and I said, I'm graduating in a semester, and I don't know what to do now because my plan of being a teacher has been shattered on the rocks of the education PhDs throughout the country. So I said, what can I do with this degree? And then I said, wait a minute, there's that law school thing I was thinking about back when I was a freshman at Cal. I wonder if I could do that. And ironically, when I decided to do that, there was only one school left that I could apply to because it was too late to apply to the other ones. And that one was my eventual alma mater, Santa Clara Law School. Back then, it was the University of Santa Clara School of Law, back when the University of Santa Clara was the Northern USC, the original USC, since then, they've changed it to Santa Clara University because people kept mixing up the Broncos with the Trojans from Southern California. So they changed their names so as to not be confused. But my law degree says University of Santa Clara proudly on the top of it there. So I went to Santa Clara Law School where um, I found it very, very interesting. I found it not as hard as I had imagined when I was a freshman in college. I graduated studied for and took the bar. At the same time that I was studying for the bar, I was doing something that I did for well over 40 years um, from high school, and that was I did a show. Now, people say, you did a show? Yeah, I performed in Oklahoma with the West Valley Light Opera as Curly, that curly-headed cowboy who gets the girl in the end. So I'd be rehearsing at the night. I'd be going to bar review during the day. People thought I was crazy. How can you be doing a theatrical production when you're studying for the bar? And I said, well, I'm a right and left brain person, and both sides of my brain need to be stimulated and worked and exercised. And what it enabled me to do was keep my balance while I was studying for the bar so that I didn't get sucked into that downward spiral of there's just too much to learn and too much to know before taking that bar exam. So when I went in and took my bar exam, I was completely calm, completely relaxed. I finished each day's sessions. We had three full days back then. Each day's session a half hour early, and I got a lot of dirty looks from other people taking their exam when I left. 
You know, how could he be done? I'm only on the second question, and I have one more to go after this. Well, I was relaxed, and I passed the bar and started practicing law. Now, you know why they call it a law practice or a medical practice or an accountancy practice? It's because we never really, truly master our profession. It's kind of impossible to master a profession like law um, because there's so much to know, so much to learn, so much that's changing all the time. As I joke, I call it a law practice because I hope to get it right someday. But, you know, joking aside, uh, I'm constantly learning new things every day and every week and every month. Now, even though I am what's called a board-certified specialist in estate planning, trust, and probate law, which means I've been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization, even though I'm a specialist in estate planning, that doesn't mean that I specialize in every aspect of estate planning. For example, I know a lot about elder law, which is things like medical planning and planning for uh, incapacity of those who are older in our society. I know a lot about it. I even worked for a firm that did elder law, but I don't really practice in that area of estate planning. I have a good colleague down in San Jose where 90% of his practice is elder law, and when I have that situation walk into my office, I refer. So what I'm saying is is that if you come and see me, which, by the way, um, you know, you'd feel free to do that if you'd ever like to book a consultation with me, it's easy enough to do. You can go to my main website at lawbob.com, that's L-A-W-B-O-B.com, and you're, it's possible to actually book consultations with me right through my online calendar at my website. That's really, really convenient for a lot of people. I find a lot of people actually book their appointments with me. Uh, it's in the evening for them or the early morning when they can actually talk with the spouse, for example, and look at their calendars and say, when can we meet with this attorney, Bob Bergman? Uh, to talk about our situation, see what advice he may have for us. So I'll be back with you after the break. This is Attorney Bob Bergman. This is Plan Your Estate Radio with San Jose estate planning attorney Bob Bergman on AM 1220 KDOW. Hi, Bob Bergman back from the break. So what I'm suggesting is that even though I'm an estate planning specialist, if I do a situation that's beyond my expertise within estate planning, I will refer people to someone that I know that can help them. I don't claim to be all things to all people. I specialize really in working on what I call foundational estate planning. Foundational estate planning is that kind of estate planning that deals with, first of all, the vast majority of people that need to have it done but also deals with very basic things like avoiding conservatorship if you become disabled and avoiding the probate process after death. Now, I'm an estate planning attorney, and a lot of people say, well, Bob, what does that mean? What What is estate planning? Uh, you know, I went to this guy at one of these financial services companies, and he called himself an estate planner. Uh, does he do what you do? I'll say, first of all, no. Um, People in financial services that call themselves estate planners, they're focusing on how to invest your money in order to have it grow, maybe to be protected, diversified, all those kinds of things. They're talking about planning the financial side of your estate. As an estate planning attorney, 
I'm focused on making sure that you have legal documents and a plan in place to avoid conservatorship during your lifetime, probate at your death, and to make sure that what you have, the property that you own, whether it's real estate or personal property like bank accounts, brokerage accounts, things like that, that it gets passed on to the people that you want it to go to, when you want it to go to them, how you want it to go to them, and that that could be done with the least amount of legal fees, court costs, and other expenses. That's kind of a pretty good short definition of what estate planning is. A little bit of housekeeping right now. Because this is the first show of uh, Plan Your State Radio, uh, I'd like to solicit from you feedback on how I'm doing, if you have any suggestions, if you have any comments, if you have any ideas for shows, or even if you have people that you know that are in related industries to estate planning that you think might have important things to say to the audience. You can send all of those things to my dedicated email, planyourestateradio at gmail.com. Plan Your State Radio, all one word, no dashes, no underscores, nothing like that. Just planyourestateradio at gmail.com. I'll try to reply to every email that comes in. Um, I am pride myself on getting back to people who contact me that way at my office. And, um, and by the way, my office, just to let you know, it's down in San Jose on Saratoga Avenue near the Westgate Shopping Center, if you know that area. Uh, my office website is lawbob.com, L-A-W-B-O-B.com, and you can feel free to go there and just browse around. Uh, no one's going to come up at the website and tap you on the shoulder or bug you about what are you interested in buying here. It's filled with lots of useful information. Uh, I believe in giving away a lot of information. That is the teacher in me coming out. I do live seminars at my office one or two Saturday mornings a month. And uh, and there I talk about living trust planning. Sometimes I do seminars on special planning for retirement plan assets. You can also go to my YouTube channel, the Law Offices of Robert P. Bergman, and see a lot of interesting things on there as well, including my living trust seminar and my retirement plan trust seminar. Now, before the break, I said I was going to be talking more about conservatorship and probate and then also some special types of things that could be done to protect the inheritance that's being passed on. First of all, conservatorship. Now, many people have heard the term conservatorship. If you're from other parts of the country, it might have been called a guardianship. Um, A conservatorship is like a guardianship. A guardianship is something that's set up for minor children who have lost their parents or whose parents have been taken away from them. Maybe the parents are incarcerated in prison or disabled or something along those lines. And a guardianship is established through the courts to put somebody in charge of the minor child and also to put someone in charge of the minor child's property. If, in fact, they own property or they've inherited property, um, a child cannot legally own property until they turn age 18 when you become a legal and what I call a theoretical adult. I'm I'm one of those older guys that thinks if you turn age 18, um, maybe you're an adult in name, 
but I'll still call you a boy or a girl unless you're active duty military or working as a firefighter or on a police force. So with that in mind, guardianship is for minor children, but sometimes adults need to have a guardian appointed for them as well. Here in California, that person is called a conservator. The person is said to be conserved, and the person who is conserved, the person who's disabled, is the conservatee. Conservatorship here in California involves a number of steps. Uh, It's a public process that goes through the court system. Uh, Everything that you own has to be inventoried and valued and uh, and, uh, an appraisal filed with the court so the court knows what your assets are. The person put in charge, the conservator, now is in charge of handling those assets for the conservatee, the disabled person, including investing them and spending the the money to take care of the conservatee. Um, The court requires that there be investigators appointed by the court to go and investigate the proposed conservator, proposed conservatee, talk with family members, do a background investigation, make sure that the conservator is an appropriate choice, but also make sure that the, that the conservatee is going to be taken care of properly. Problem with conservatorship is it is expensive. All the expense comes out of your pocket if you have to be conserved. And uh, regular accountings have to be filed with the court system letting the court know where every dime you made and every dime was spent on you, where it went. So it's expensive, it's public, and uh, it can be very intrusive into somebody's life. Now, when somebody dies, if they don't have any kind of an estate plan in place, and, and by the way, the most popular estate plan here in the United States, about two-thirds of the country at any given time, this is their estate plan. Don't do anything. I know, remarkable. The plan is to do no planning. Now, if you do no planning here in California and you die and you own property, you are said to die intestate. Intestate means that you don't have any will, no last will and testament. So intestate, testament, they have the same Latin root. Um, And it basically means testimony. You don't have any testimony about your property, uh, how you want your property distributed. Uh, Back in the day, last will and testament often had someone's profession of their religious belief that was in it to encourage those left behind to continue on in their faith, whatever their faith tradition happened to be. Nowadays, though, about two-thirds of people don't do any active planning which means they end up in the probate process when they die. Now, the admission ticket to the probate process is a very low threshold. It has to do with the total value of property in your name or payable to your probate estate when you die. Here's the deal. The threshold is $150,000 of aggregate value of property. That's not a lot. Oh, by the way, you can have real estate with a value of up to $50,000 fair market value. I'll pause for a moment while uh, those of you who fell out of your chairs laughing can get back in your chairs. And hopefully if you're listening while you're driving home, you didn't just swerve off the road when I said that. $50,000. Now, those of us who live here in the Bay Area, is there any real estate anywhere in the Bay Area with a market value of $50,000 or less. 
Go ahead. I'll give you five seconds to ponder that one. Four, three, two, one. <clears throat> There's the buzzer. No, absolutely not. I mean, you couldn't get an outhouse in the Bay Area for, for $50,000 or less. So why do we have such low thresholds? Well, it has to do with the fact that in the past, the dollar limits were $100,000 and $20,000 of real estate. Now, clearly, those numbers were put in a long, long time ago. There are houses where I live down in the South Bay in the Willow Glen area that were purchased for sixteen or $17,000 in the late 1950s. Those houses could be worth one and a half to two million dollars or more today. So clearly the numbers were for a, a gentler, less expensive, maybe more peaceful time than today, but they certainly do not apply to today. So what does that mean? If you don't have a plan, you're going to go into the probate system. And there's a lot of things that have to happen in probate before your property gets passed on to the people that are intended to receive it. The laws of intestate succession will say, who gets your stuff when you die? That's pretty much what that means. And a lot of property will end up going to the people you would expect to receive it, maybe like a spouse, like your children. If you're unmarried and have no kids, and maybe it will go to your parents or your brothers and sisters or nieces and nephews. But you know what? That means it could end up going to people that you would not want to receive it just because they happen to be closely related to you. And we all know people or maybe have people in our own families that fit that description where we would not want them. So here's the deal. If you don't do any planning, you're going to end up in the probate process if you have that $150,000 or $50,000 or more of real estate, and the court's going to decide who gets your property when you die. You still have to wait four months before you could even think of trying to file a petition to close out the estate. So now we're at four months plus three to six months. The fastest one I've ever done in my career was seven months from the time we filed. That was back when it took a lot less time to get into court. There were no complications of any kind, and I hit every deadline precisely. Nine months to a year is much more typical. So, That's the time delays. It's also completely public. Everything you own, everybody you owe, who's going to receive your property, where they live, what they're receiving, and how old they are is all in the public record. That all has to be filed with the court. You can imagine there's people that are looking for their next victim to con out of their inheritance because now the court made it easy to let people know what you're inheriting from your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, whoever it happens to be. I want to leave you with a few thoughts. First of all, estate planning, like they say on those commercials on TV where they show the crazy driver driving at high speed on the coast highway heading down to uh, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara area. These are trained professionals on a closed course. Professional drivers. Do not attempt. Estate planning is a specialty in the law. There's a reason why I am a specialist. It's because it is a specialty in the law. After the break, I'll tell you a little more about probate, and then we'll talk a bit about living trust.
Now, back to Plan Your Estate Radio with attorney Bob Bergman. The following is a repeat of my first Plan Your Estate Radio show introducing me and my approach to estate planning. Feel free to contact me at planyourestateradio at gmail.com or visit my website at lawbob.com for more information. Before the break, I was talking about the probate process, so I thought I'd give you a little idea how probate works here in California. If you have to go into the probate court in the county where you lived and passed away, there's a lot of steps that have to be followed. One thing I'll start by saying is that the probate process here in the state of California is the the longest, the most complicated, and the most expensive probate process in the entire United States. There are some states where probate happens and is started and completed in as little as a month. Now, ponder that for a moment. 30 days later, all the bills have been paid, everybody gets their property and goes on their merry way. Here in California, we have a requirement that the court be petitioned by whoever is going to be handling the estate of the person that's died. Now, the person that's died is called the decedent. So when I mention the decedent, I'm talking about whoever just died. If you don't have any kind of will in place, or I'll say even if all you have is a will, then what's going to happen is you're going to have to petition, or the person you've named is going to have to petition the court to be appointed as your personal representative. Here uh, in Santa Clara County, where I practice, it takes about two to two and a half months to get a court date on the calendar of the probate judge in order to have that petition heard and someone appointed as the personal representative for the decedent's estate. Now, it used to be I could pick up the phone and I could call the calendar clerk downtown at the probate court and say, hey, I'm getting ready to start a new probate. Can you tell me what the what the newest calendar date is that's available to me? And, and, and I'd be told it's two and a half months out. And I said, great. Could I make a reservation for that date? And they'd say, great, what's the name of the decedent? I give the decedent's name. Uh, And here's the date, 9 o'clock calendar, Department 10, whatever it happened to be. And then I would be assigned a case number by the clerk, typically starting with the year, then PR for probate, and then a six-digit number. And I go, great. Then I'd go back and I'd draft the petition, put everything together, get a notice of the hearing, and then I would send out the notice, copy a petition to everybody entitled to receive a copy of the petition. Then I'd file all the paperwork with the court, and I was already on the calendar. Well, more recently, we went to e-filing. That happened uh, early in uh, 2017, basically. E-filing means all the probate matters now are filed through the court system electronically. And I can't call up and get a court date anymore. Instead, I can't get a court date until I'm ready to file the paperwork, complete paperwork. Then I look and see and I call a number and they tell me, set on or after this date. And then I put that date in on my paperwork and then I e-file. So right there, if it takes me two or three weeks as an attorney to gather all the information together to do the petition and get it done, we've lost two or three weeks on the front end of that probate. So now we're two or three weeks plus two and a half months to get into court. We may be three months 
And that's assuming we started the day someone died. Usually people don't come to me until a week or two or even a month or two after the person died when they realize, you know what, I can't sell my dad's house because it's still in my dad's name. I have to get it into a name where it can be sold with me as the person in charge. So now we're three months, maybe four months, maybe five months after the decedent has died, and we're in court. Court says, great, you're in charge. You're the personal representative. If there's no will, we'll call you the administrator. If there is a will, we'll call you the executor. Different titles, same job, and same process. There's really no substantive difference between no will and just a will. A lot of people think doing a will gets you further along in the process. I describe it this way when I do my seminars. Having no will is like you're playing a game of football and you just took over the ball on your one-yard line and you have 99 yards to go to score, 99 yards to actually complete that probate. If you have a will, you're in luck. You get the ball on your two-yard line. Yeah, one yard closer to the goal. Now, In the game of football, is a yards difference at your end of the field? Does that mean much? Not at all. It does if you're on their one-yard line. you got one yard to score. But if you're starting on the one or two at the beginning, you have a long way to go to get that touchdown scored. And the thing is, the way probate works, if things go wrong, if things get muddied up, your football field could end up 200 yards long or 300 yards long just because of delays that are built into the system and things that can go wrong. So let's assume you're in court now. You're now put in charge. You're the administrator of the estate. Now you get to start the four-month time clock for creditors to file claims with the estate to show, hey, this person owed me money, this credit card, whatever it is, and we want to be paid. You may say, well, Bob, what if you know the decedent had no bills? They were debt-free didn't even have a mortgage on the house. You know what? Doesn't matter under the law. Probate can be very expensive for a family. And there's nothing worse than probating something like the residence, or even worse, the money sitting in the bank, which is just cash after all. You can't just say, well, I'll take the cash out of the bank and here we go. No, it doesn't really work that way. So we want to avoid probate We want to avoid conservatorship. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth on them because we're running out of time today. It's been fun so far. I hope it's been fun and entertaining for you. So this is attorney Bob Bergman signing off for Plan Your Estate Radio. You've been listening to Plan Your Estate Radio with estate planning attorney Bob Bergman. For more information on today's program or to schedule a consultation, visit lawbob.com, where you'll also find information on his upcoming estate planning seminars, L-A-W-B-O-B, lawbob.com, or call his office in San Jose, 408-247-0444. That's 408-247-0444. And be sure to tune in next week for more Plan Your Estate Radio. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of this station and are for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be legal, financial, or tax advice. Seek appropriate legal advice regarding your particular situation. Attorney Bob Bergman does not offer any guarantees with regard to the outcome of your legal matter. Prior results in other cases do not guarantee a similar outcome in your case. All rights reserved.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.